to the AWP podcast series. This interview originally occurred at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Brian Broder and Terrence Hayes. Hello and welcome to the Association of Writers and Writing Programs podcast. I'm Brian Broder and I'm here at the 2011 AWP Annual Conference in Washington, D.C. with poet Terrence Hayes. Terrence Hayes is the author of four collections of poetry, including most recently Lighthead, which won the National Book Award. A previous collection, Wind in a Box, was named one of the best 100 books of 2006 by Publishers Weekly. His other books of poetry are Hip Logic, which won the National Poetry Series Open Competition and was a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Award, and Muscular Music, which won the Kate Tufts Discovery Award. His other honors include a Pushcart Prize, several Best American Poetry selections, a Whiting Writers Award, the National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship, and a Guggenheim Fellowship. He is, he is Professor of Creative Writing at Carnegie Mellon University and lives with his family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Terrence Hayes, welcome. Thanks, man. Yeah, I should have told you, you could just say, here's Terrence. <laughs> He's from Pittsburgh. That's so much stuff to say. Yeah, uh, no one really cares about it, to tell you the truth. <laughs> Including nah, myself. Nah, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> uh, would you mind uh, starting off by reading a poem? Sure. This is the uh, first poem in Lighthead. It's called Lighthead's Guide to the Galaxy. Ladies and gentlemen, ghosts and children of the state, I am here because I could never get the hang of time. This hour, for example, would be like all the others were it not for the rain falling through the roof. I'd better not be too explicit. My night is careless with itself, troublesome as a woman wearing no bra in winter. I believe everything is a metaphor for sex. Love making mimics the act of departure. Moonlight drips from the leaves. You can spend your whole life doing no more than preparing for life and thinking, is this all there is? Thus, I am here where poets come to drink a dark, strong poison with tiny shards of ice, something to loosen my primate tongue and its syllables of debris. I know all words come from pre-existing words and divide until our pronouncements develop selves. The small dog barking at the darkness has something to say about the way we live. I'd rather have what my daddy calls scrimp. He says discreet and means the street just out of sight. Not what you see, but what you perceive. That's poetry. Not the noise, but its rhythm. An arrangement of derangements. I'll eat you to live. That's poetry. I wish I glowed like a brown-skinned pregnant woman. I wish I could weep the way my teacher did as he read us Molly Bloom's soliloquy of yes. When I kiss my wife, sometimes I taste her caution. But let's not talk about that. Maybe art's only purpose is to preserve the self. Sometimes I play a game in which my primitive craft fires upon an alien ship whose intention is the destruction of the earth. Other times I fall in love with a word like somberness or moonlight juicing naked branches. All species have a notion of emptiness and yet the flowers don't quit opening. I am here carrying the whimper you can hear when the mouth is collapsed, the wisdom of monkeys. Ask a glass of water why it pities the rain. Ask the lunatic yard dog 
why it tolerates the leash. Brothers and sisters, when you spend your nights out on a limb, there's a chance you'll fall in your sleep. Great, thanks. So in, uh, in Lighthead, uh, that, po that poem, of course, is the first in Lighthead, you've created a, a number of characters who speak from, um, who speak, uh, speak different poems throughout the book. Anchorhead, Tankhead, Guzzlehead, Airhead, all kind of head cases. Sure. <laughs> uh, uh, and of course, Lighthead himself. Do you consider these characters to be separate personae distinct from the I who speaks the rest of the poems in the book? Are they alter egos or stand-ins for the poet himself? Yeah, maybe they're sorts of alter egos. In the in the previous book, uh, Wind in a Box, I had a series of speakers that were sort of like these blue figures, like the blue Borges, the blue Bowie, the blue, blue Baraka. Right, and inevitably there was the blue Terrence. And I thought of all of those as kinds of persona poems, although not all of them were even in first person. Yeah. So this is maybe an extension of that idea, but in some ways decentralizing the idea of like attaching it to a persona so like it's Terrence or it's Bowie or it's uh, Borges and instead thinking about like what is lighthead what is anchorhead what does it mean to be heavy-headed what does it mean to be tank-headed yeah. so I am thinking about it as a kind of persona and they just allow me to sort of explore things that I'm really thinking about you know yeah. it's a device to sort of free up my myself free free myself of sort of the obligations of personal narrative and uh, uh, you know autobiography sometimes I think sure yeah yeah, and moving into, did you find that moving into these characters uh, kind of, uh, we said, you mentioned allowed you to kind of escape autobiography sure. and, and personal narrative. Did they kind of, um, how did you kind of differentiate between the, the different, like, lighthead, et cetera? Right, right. Um, did, did you find it hard to jump from one to the next? And also, did you write those poems in the same period of time, or? Right, no, I mean, the lighthead, poem there's the, the the first poem in the book the one that I read is actually the last that I wrote uh -huh. uh, so I was sort of playing around with them and I wasn't sure what would happen which is the way I prefer to write uh, and then there were other poems there's a poem called Tankhead which is it's sort of it's a poem to someone who works at a uh, amusement park and their job is to be General Patton so they have to wear this big head and so <laughs> that poem had some other title at some point but as I was sort of organizing the book I thought oh you know what that that could be a, like a head poem too I mean literally because you're inside this big bobblehead of, right. of Patton and then another poem which is uh, about Hurricane Katrina and it's called Fish Head for Katrina and again the same sort of idea where I was playing around with like that sort of what does the term bring to mind mm -hmm. but I, I hadn't like thought of them as a a sequence even because the, obviously the difference between like a poem that I described called Tankhead and then Katrina or even the Lighthead poems I, w I was not seeing them necessarily as a sequence I just kept sort of circling back to the same idea of uh, of head cases as you said yeah. that was a thing that sort of I couldn't shake as a sort of uh, possibility for the poem yeah. so I feel like they're sort of spread out through the book you'll find them but there's no real they're not as organized in the book as some of the other poems might be or the other sort of uh forms that I'm exploring you know they just sort of show up where they fit so do you uh, think of these characters <clears throat> excuse me as kind of counterpoints to the uh, iconic historical figures in that book and and other books too I mean mm -hmm. so you, you mentioned that the the, the blue right. the blue Terrence the blue Borges right. sort of think of those put those in the same sort of light or right. you know and like you know I'm thinking there's Wallace Stevens appears mm -hmm. in, in Lighthead uh, mm -hmm. Harriet Tubman etc etc right so do you think of them as kind of counterpoints to these icons or who actually lived <laughs> right yeah I think there's some overlap again which is why I brought up the the Patton yeah. figure yeah. Uh, I, you know I'll, I'll say this 
the sort of fun thing that happens to me in the midst of just exploring a fairly general idea because all I need is just something to get me going yeah. and then at the end I look at my obsessions and it's <laughs> like oh I got a bunch of these head poems and then I can see another poem that didn't have a kind of head poem and I say oh that'll fit that's really I'm pretending that it's not but it really is so it's only sort of in retrospect that I give it even the kind of like intellectual or aesthetic sort of frame yeah. that we're in the way we're talking about it now but one of the poems where there's this wonderful overlap for me that is just uh uh it's just a happy accident would be the coffin for head of state uh -huh. so again like that one doesn't say explicitly it's a lighthead poem or it's a uh fish head poem and then it's also that poem is a longer version of this this form that i'm exploring throughout the book uh, but it's the it's a coffin for head of state. So embedded in that sort of title is the head of state, which goes back to like what is the state of your head. So you know a writer, what a writer feels is like, well, am I going to really like spell that out? Am I going to make that a clear idea to hold the book together, or am I just going to let it be? And you know, nine times out of ten, I will just say, oh, that that tickles me that there's that relationship. But I don't know if everybody will get it on the first or second reading. If they'll get it, if they're not like you know. Looking, listening to this interview, that sort of thing. But, but so those kinds of moments do arise for me. And I do have some sort of intellectual uh, joy in seeing those connections. But I don't feel that, that same pressure to make it sort of the point of, yeah. the, of the collection. So it's that kind of thing where you'll come across it and you'll say, is that on purpose? This is <laughs> coffin for head of state. And, you know, what does that have to do with these other head poems? And I, I, I like that moment that yeah. happens. Yeah. Was uh, was Coffin for Head of State written uh, during the Bush administration or uh, the Obama? Yeah. Okay, it was, it was, and I've gotten into some trouble, ironically, good really? trouble. In yeah. a way, you know, if we're just talking about sort of like the way things change from book to book. Obviously, uh, I mean, the last book was in 2006, so so obviously we were sort of in the midst of a different kind of political moment, or we were having a new political reality mm -hmm. for the country. Mm -hmm. um, and I was working through it like everybody else, but even like when Hurricane Katrina happened. Not too long after that, there were requests from, from people in journals, like, do you have a Katrina poem, is what people yeah. were asking me. And I'd lived, in, I'd lived in New Orleans a few years before that, and uh, before moving to, to Pennsylvania. So I said, oh, eventually, there'll be one. You yeah. know, it's that kind of thing, eventually. And so here it is now, in this book, that, that poem appears. But that is sort of the way that I process things. So even to say, yes, Coffin for Head of, for Head of State is very much a sort of response to a period that we were living in. But it's a, it's a response to it that has to work over. Yeah. And maybe that's what metaphor does for us. It sort of lets us step a little bit outside of time so that I can deal with it not as a sort of like reaction to the moment but a reflection on the moment or on the period so again to talk about like what's hidden and what's obvious so that's how i felt about the poem so i think like the poem is mostly couched in metaphor yeah. and you can sort of see what's happening but it's not i didn't think it was explicit but i've read that poem and on more than one occasion i've gotten a response like oh that's a pretty mean poem about the bush it was always people who didn't share my political views obviously who felt you know nervy enough to come up and approach me but I'm always like oh you got that you know I didn't think I didn't think you were going to see it and then I'm like I'm, I'm glad it pissed you off yeah, I mean you know. right. so so that's been good I mean you know and I, I, people have said oh the book is angry and it's political and I just think oh you know it's just me trying to be me it's just the things that I've been reflecting on and I don't even think I reduce it to pure anger or, or pure love I mean I think that's some of what's in even uh the poem I read, the lighthead poem, you know, it's a little bit of melancholy, there's a little bit of the sublime, there's a little bit of happiness, but you know, all those things overlap, and I'm, I'm fine with that kind as, of... As they do in life. Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, so. Um, so, do you find it, uh, 
daunting or difficult to write uh, directly about historical uh, moments, especially historical moments that we are living in currently. Um, you know, you mentioned Katrina, right. uh, et cetera. Um, you know, and it seems like, so it seems like a germ was, you know, was planted in your, right. in your mind somewhere and sort of, did you, you had, you had to wait a right. while to, right. to, or, or did you, did you, did you consciously try to coax it out or? Uh, I mean, I think that it still goes back to reflection. Like the poems are born out of just ideas that keep coming back to me more than me trying to dig up things because there's lots of poems I would like to write. I mean, I, in the midst somewhere, I mean, I, I I always have poems and people see the poems that float up, but beneath those poems that float to the surface is like a, you know, a sea of failed poems, right? So in response to that, like I'm thinking about this poem about Frederick Douglass that I kept trying to work and kept trying to work and I, eventually I, I abandoned it. But it just has something to do with like Frederick Douglass as a kind of superhero is what I was thinking about, you know? And so similarly, you know, somewhere in that, that train of thought, I must have gotten to say Harriet Tubman. So, but the poems are born out of really like being in a place and having a re response to something or having something happen and then thinking about what that is. And so I do think of myself as a person who's very uh, interested in history. I mean, obviously I think a person that reads a lot or is interested in literature, there's going to be some component of, of interest in history Absolutely. connected to that. So that just means that I'm often thinking back on Wallace Stevens because I'm reading Wallace Stevens. And so when I sit down and write about Wallace Stevens, I'm thinking about the poem capturing that that sense again that sense of sort of you know uh love without forgiveness and saying not though do i hate him or do i do i not hate him those kinds of things but really trying to capture that sort of engagement with him and so that's my relationship to a lot of the historical things the political things that show up i'm really just trying to create a kind of transparent sense of my relationship to these things you know and then you know the more clarity is there the more transparent it is i sort of feel like the more successful i am and showing what's complex about those things. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, also, uh, family history is something mm -hmm. you write about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the birth of your son, the estrangement of your father, uh, your brother, um, right. also figures prominently in your poems. How does a poet make art out of autobiographical material? Uh, or, or maybe how does this sure. poet? <laughs> well, let me see if I can talk about that sort of not almost like, it's just, it comes back as a sort of natural subject. And in fact, it's the, I, I would like to do it less, but I know as a person who just is, again, reflective and thinking about, like, what does this mean? And or, also uh, obsessions. These yeah, obsessions. absolutely. That's what I was going to say, too. So the last poem uh, in this long form, it's called Arbor for Butch, is the, it wasn't the first Pichacucha in that form that I wrote, but it was the first sort of one that succeeded. And it's the one that I had been really struggling with to find the right form for it, but uh, without going into the formal dimensions of that poem, I'd really sort of thought that once I met my biological father, uh, and I met him, you know, like maybe seven years ago, yeah. something like that, that I, I would, part of the reason I wanted to meet him was to move beyond what I feel are like an obsession of my poem, which is the idea of like male figures, father figures, et cetera, et cetera. I thought like when I meet this guy, then I can, I'll be ready to move into a new territory as a poet. And of course, I don't even know like if that, it's possible, you know, because I've met him and it just really just opened up all these other doors <laughs> yeah. as opposed to like bringing some sense of closure. So then that's to say, like part of the reason I'm interested in family is because in some sense I think, oh, I'm working through things, but it's just like it doesn't end. You know, in fact, I would say this is an interesting sort of way of thinking about poems. And I think this is how I got to it, which is to say, I, I think we often think, you know, you write your you write your Wallace Stevens poem and then you're done. 
you figured them out. Everybody can see it. Now let's move on to the next subject. And it's a weird way that like many poets and even I think myself will have a tendency to sort of take on everything as a kind of object that you handle and then you put behind you mm-hmm. and then you handle. So you're just constantly moving through the store, only touching everything once. Uh, yeah. And so I think, but you know, family doesn't really allow that. So it's like, you can say I wrote one mama poem, but really you're probably going to need to write quite a few more because the relationship is so complex and so meaty. And so for me, I think it's interesting to think about that in terms of, uh, in terms of figures, in terms of saying, for me, like someone like David Bowie, there's a Bowie poem in Win in the Box, but I think about David Bowie all the time, you know? <laughs> so it's like, well, I can't like not think about David Bowie just because I wrote a poem about him. So in this book, uh, there's a poem called uh, God is an American. And that's a line from so the David Bowie. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But again, it's like, I'm well, if you've been, Americans. yeah, right. I'm afraid of America. That's what I love. You know? yeah. So you, you would, you would only know, you have to know Bowie. I know that I was interested in him to know that, but that's one of the ways that I'm dealing with this. Like, well, I'm not going to not keep writing about <laughs> David Bowie. I don't have to write the same thing. Right. I don't have to come at it with the same angle, but I do have to sort of still deal with him because he's floating across, you know, the headspace. And yeah. so, uh, I, I think that that, again, the lesson in that for me is connected to the idea of not really being able to outrun the subject matter of, of family in particular, because, you know, even if you're going to the poems for some sense of uh, comprehension, you know, like the, the way that people interact, you find that that comprehension is always temporary. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, I have it today, but tomorrow I'll be lost again. Well, tomorrow so, you're a new person anyway. Yeah, so. that's right. That's right. It keeps slipping away. And I think that's all right. You know, I just, that's, you know, that's what you're chasing, I guess. So. Great, and uh, you mentioned uh, the Pecha Kucha. Mm-hmm. Am I saying, is that anyway? Uh, you know, the, the, the popular Japanese business presentation right. methodology. Um, how did you arrive at this form? And yeah, right. Well, I, I, so I have to. Can I tell the whole story? Because yeah, a, yeah, of course. I'm asking myself because it's such a long story. You're saying yeah, but you don't know how long a story is. Uh, well, it's a short version. It's, you know, Pecha Kucha. I you know. know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Well, the short version of one part of it is just I wound up at, at one of those presentations. Yeah. I was invited to do one of the presentations, uh, and the deal for the presentation was that you know they give everybody a topic. They did on this night, and then you just show up with the subject. And so the topic was like open systems. And so they said, oh, you know, so send us the slides that you think revolve around open systems, and then you have like your 20 seconds to go through the slides. And there was a lot of other people invited on this night. There's this guy who's well-known, actually, uh, outside of Pittsburgh, John Fetterman. He's actually in the Levi commercials now, but he was there, the mayor of Braddock. Uh, a musician, a jazz musician, and a bunch of architects. And so the people who put it together were doing something around, they were architects who sort of come up with the idea. So then I thought, open systems, language is an open system. This is becoming the long version of the story. So I thought, oh yeah, language is an open system. This is cool. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get like my favorite poems. Uh, I think I had more than 20 poems. I think I had like 50. And I'm going to take the most (laughs) intense parts of those poems Mm -hmm. And I'm going to weave them together and make one poem. So I had uh, Adrian Rich in there, and I had like Jack Gilbert. You know, like it's Jack Gilbert, particularly intense, a yes. poet I love. Baraka, you know, Baraka's poem, Black Arts, poems of bullshit unless they shoot come at you. Crazy stuff. So I'm taking all of the most sort of provocative and intense moments, the most beautiful lines, uh, and then I weave them into this poem. It takes a lot of work. Like mm-hmm. it's a collage, and I'm, so I'm working on it, you know, feverishly. I stop all of my work. And at some point, my... Uh, Wife says, uh, "You don't think it's just a slideshow? It sort of sounds like a slideshow." And I say, "No, no, no. It's much more radical. It's much more radical than that." And so, so we get there, 
And uh, the first person that goes up is a, uh, an architect. And she has her slide button. And she says, open systems. In the dictionary, open systems are. And she's clicking through it. And I'm like, oh, my God, the sweat starts running down my face. Like, I've completely done this wrong. Oh, God. And so I get up. And fortunately for me, it's, uh, well, I, I feel anxiety. But so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go up. So maybe I'm the third person. And the first two, there's a little bit of difference, but not enough to make me feel comfortable. And so I go and I present. And it is it's very intense. The kids are completely quiet you know, everybody in the audience uh, and so I sit down and I say to the owner and my wife I did that all wrong she's like no that was really intense that was nobody everybody's speechless I mean I just have read like you know excerpts of the best poems in the last century right. all together right. like exactly. consecutively <laughs> so for seven minutes and so and then later on as it unfolded I realized that it is part of what they wanted was that diversity because like the the musician actually had audio nice. and he's like oh music jazz is an open system that you can yeah. improvise in and my point was just that language is uh malleable that it changes and that like things like juxtaposition create a narrative so that you don't have to force narrative on anything you know we just real free associate and we'll fill in the blanks sure, and so, like, like the wasteland so you've been right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i thought well, i could just take you know random poems and then yeah. put them in a certain order and you'll hear these, these fragments there. you have shorted upon. That's yeah. right. <laughs> so at the end of that, I said to my wife, man, you know, I, I did find that a very intense. Like I could feel it and I was sweating. And I thought, man, I wish I could do that with my own poems. And that was it. Like I just started trying to figure out how to make it work. Uh, and I, I wrote a bunch of them that didn't work. Yeah. But in particular, like the one, the first successful one is Arbor for Butch. And so, uh, and I sweat sometimes when I read it. But I was looking for that kind of, again, that sense of, movement that was forward but also sort of lyric at the same time so obviously there's characters in that one some of them are you know they're they're very different across the book so some are more fragmented and lyric than others that one's more narrative i think it was because it was at the sort of start of the process for me but i just you know i put it at the back of the book i don't know why i did it at the moment so then the second part of that story i'll make this the short part is that this summer we went to uh japan because the people who they started doing it this uh design uh one the, the two people in design and they, neither one of them are japanese but they start set up maybe in 2003 uh one is british and one is german and so we went to tokyo mm, and nice. i met him and i talked to him and so they said to me it's pichachka pichachka but i think it's pichacucha uh-huh. it's a loan word and so the figures for pichacucha mean picture like it's a japanese person saying picture can i take your picture your picture right. picture picture but the slang for it is chit chat Right, that's right, yeah. So, yeah. so I'm always conflicted because I think, well, you know, you might be right. It's like trying to convince someone about a, you know, well, it's trying to convince someone about slang, and I'm just trying to be literal with it. But I, I, I like that it's picture, mm-hmm. even though it's pachachka is really the pronunciation. So I've just decided I'm going to say it the way that I want to say it. Yeah, so, well. But they were very cool. They were, they were very sweet people and excited about it. And the event that I went to also, again, it's just so, uh, it's both organized and also sort of spontaneous, which is what I really love about writing, in fact, with a sense of that kind of immediacy, but it's it's contemplated, you know, and so that, I think those, the actual performances uh, nurture that kind of uh, space, they create that kind of space. When you were uh, assembling those poems, putting them together, weaving them, stitching them, um, did you, how did you write them? Did you have just you know, uh, a bunch of lines one day and a bunch of lines another day? Did you write them all at once? Did you? Right. Well, they were all very different. I mean, I think uh, with the poem about meeting my father, it was just such a big experience that I I knew that it wasn't, in some ways, it wasn't going to be a poem. And in fact, I did write an essay 
about uh, that experience. And so I thought, well, the essay still was sort of not able to get fully into what it meant, uh, like emotionally or these overlapping feelings about history and relationship that I had my son there and these other things. So I just thought that that poem was too big. So I'd been writing through that and then I just sort of like chiseled it down and reorganized it. Um, and with the Fela Kuti poem, I just thought it was just this wonderful idea of the coffin for head of state. I feel like that poem grew very much out of my sense of Fela Kuti's relationship to sort of like the political state. Yeah. So I thought I, I do want to like approach that subject and then to organize it, I just used snippets of all of his songs. I mean, I got all of his music. So I was just literally trying to write a poem that was sort of in the spirit of the music that I was listening to. So each of the 20 sections is like, oh, if you go back and listen to this track, you may get some sense of uh, the, the feeling or the texture of that moment. So that, again, completely different response to it. Uh, the one about Malcolm X and my mm -hmm. brother for Brothers of the Dragon was me really wanting to write a novel. Because uh -huh. <laughs> I think that's such a great story. The story being that, you know, part of the reason that Malcolm X got into the nation was because his brothers had been there. And this is so left out of sort of the, the narrative, the full narrative of his life. Uh, but of course, when he decided that he didn't want to be with uh, Elijah Muhammad and he thought that there was problems with it, his brothers stayed. Yeah. So essentially there was a riff in the right. family. And I always thought about like what, what no, that guilt that those brothers would feel might send them to try to find out like what really happened to him. And I had this whole vision of a, you know, a sort of a detective novel. Oh, oh, and I, I talked to uh, some friends who were writers and I said, look, man, I'm going to give you this idea. And then you just, I don't, you could just like give me credit. Just like say inspired by Terrence. I don't want any of the money. I don't want to do any book tours. I right. just want this you to do this. should be written. Now. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah, right. And then, and this is what I really love about poetry. And then I thought, well, the only way I can really get that out is to like just do a poem about it, about this imaginary novel yeah. that I could write. And so again, that's a sort of localized response to it. But in working all that out, really thinking about like the nature of family, kinship, and, and really brotherhood, again, which is a subject I think that I keep coming back to. I got to my relationship to my brother. I just have, you know, yeah. one brother. Uh, in fact, there's a side note, like someone, I don't think this is the poem they were talking about, but someone said, oh, I like that poem you have about the two boys. <laughs> and I was like, all my poems are about two boys. There's always two guys doing something yeah. in my poem. You know, they're taking an adventure, they're running somewhere. So again, the Brothers of the Dragon, uh, it's really about two brothers. So you mentioned um, David Bowie earlier, and yeah. of course many musicians come up in, in your work sure. across all of your books. Um, so what role does music play in your life and poetry? Uh, how has music affected your writing? Uh, of course, it obviously affects it through subject matter. Sure, but... sure. Yeah, I, would, uh, I wouldn't be the first person to say, I, you know, I wish I was a musician. Uh -huh. So, and I, I, you know, I've messed around on the piano. Part of what the, the, the most exciting thing about me for music is this sort of sense of communicating things fairly quickly without language. So I'm not thinking about like song lyrics, I'm just thinking about the way that music sort of works as a you know, direct line to like one's feeling. Yeah. So, and people are so open to that uh, because I guess there's no language involved. We just are so much more trusting of what we experience when we hear music than when we hear language. So that, that essential riff is the thing that makes me constantly envious about what musicians can do. Um, so I'm always thinking about like ways to sort of make something like that happen in, in, in work. And I mean, as a person who listens to so many different kinds of music, I think that's really where my interest in different kinds of poems come from. So 
uh, in the Fela Kuti poem, if I'm thinking about like, well, this is, it's the same artist and it's generally the same genre, but to think about like a different tone across those pieces. So I, I feel like so much of what I'm interested in doing as a writer is connected to like, you know, what I would want to do if I was a musician, which is to be broad and to be restless and try to change things, but try to like make people feel things. Uh, there's a, uh, the poet Michael S. Harper says, you know, you got, you still want the people to dance yeah, at yep. the end of the day. And, you know, and I think that there's some truth in that too. Like I am interested in like having a real impact that isn't all sort of cerebral or all, all completely meditative. But I think, you know, if you just do the parallel with music, that's completely possible. I mean, I think, you know, both those things can happen in the space of, of one song. So it just feels like an appropriate metaphor for the way that I want to be yeah. as a writer in essence. And that's why I'm constantly just drawing from it as a person who just listens to it all the time. So, so do you, do you uh, think about poetry as something to be heard? And, uh, you know, you mentioned that great quote from Harper. Um, you know, obviously, when you do readings, you, you know, people aren't going to be dancing in the aisles. Sure. Unless you're really good. Right. But, right. Uh, you know. uh, start, start singing, maybe. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so do you think of uh, poetry as a kind of um, performance, even if, even if, even if uh, you know a, a reader, as most people right. receive poetry, is right. you know alone in a room. Right. You know? No, that's interesting. I, I would say first, the short answer is that it just it changes from poem to poem. Yeah, sure. I mean, I have written, and actually, this is interesting with prose. Like sometimes I'm thinking about things that will never be meant to be heard out loud. So the problem comes when the time is to actually read it. Right. You know? But so, but with poetry, I'm often thinking that I know at some point I'm going to have to put it in the air, and if it doesn't go in the air, that means it's not ready, mm -hmm. is essentially what I think. My sense of it is that it just really sort of depends on what the, what the piece is. You just sort of wait to see what individual poems are gonna ask, ask you for. Yeah. I think about this stuff. Um, throughout your career, you've taught at a number of colleges and universities, including Carnegie Mellon, where you work now. Uh, how has teaching affected your work as a poet, if at all, or? Um, I do like to perform. So when I was younger, uh, you know, in graduate school, I hung out with lots of guys who were rappers. And so one of the things that they always had a problem with, with me, was that I always wanted to read from the paper. So I would get up and I would do, I would read it and try to be expressive, but obviously it wasn't the same degree of like having memorized the poem and they were doing these things. And so at one point I just said to him, well, I just sort of think that uh, I want people to know that it's written down. So I do value it as a sort of oral experience and I do value putting it into the air. But it's also very important for me to let people see me reading it because it really should be read. And so to not have any paper and say, oh, just relax and watch me, watch the poet, as opposed to saying, you know, look at the poem. Here's a book, here's a piece of paper. And so, and they sort of bought that. You know, it was also that I just was afraid to memorize anything. <laughs> but, but that idea of saying, yes, it is an oral quality, but why would I not just memorize the poems? It is to say, to underscore, like that it is something that has to be read. I mean, it's not just that you should hear it. You do have to read it and you have to reread it many times to, to get that, that quality. How that relates to teaching is that I do like the sense of being up in front. I do like the performative part of it because I think it's all a performance, even when the people are pretending that they're you know, completely spontaneous or they're yeah, yeah. completely shy. It's all a kind of performance. And so uh, my wife has said to me like, oh, you know, you could like be in Hollywood or something like that. But really I couldn't unless they only let me talk about what I'm interested in, which is very 
narrow, like music. I can, I'll get on the stage and you just say, talk about music. I could go for an hour. <laughs> Poetry, I could go for like three days. Yeah. And then everything else, I'm completely like, oh, I, I don't know what to say. I'm stumbling through the performance. <laughs> so I do, uh, teaching is the only space that that happens. Like it's a space that I can control and I can read something and be excited about it and say, I'm going to put that on my syllabus. I'm going to make that a conversation. And so uh, that's really what I love about it. And I don't even think that that's necessarily connected to like the work itself. It's just more connected to my excitement about other people's work. And so teaching keeps me in touch with that. Yeah. So I don't look for connections. I mean, when I give my students writing prompts, I don't do them, you know, uh, anything that sort of happens that might in another space be a catalyst for me. I try to avoid it because really I want to just sort of take it in. I want to guide. And I think it's sort of a different side of the brain, but it's the side that I really love it's like the reader side you know the sort of exploratory side not the making side so that's why I really do I do really I mean to a sort of excessive degree I love teaching because it just sort of feels like the place around most of me you know as a as a person who loves literature yeah what uh what do you think you would do if you couldn't teach Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think I would still be teaching. I probably have more kids, so right. I, could, I could teach them. You know, <laughs> I would make my classroom. Right, the ultimate, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I don't know. Um, yeah, I, 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 I guess I would say, what did I think I was going to do? I think I decided I was going to teach even before I knew it. Yeah. So that like I had this English. I mean, when I think about like, was there ever a moment where I imagined doing something else? Uh, but when I was in high school, and I didn't, you know, my parents didn't graduate from. From, uh, from high school, and so education wasn't necessarily anybody was thinking about. Like, it would have been enough for me to graduate from high school to have been sort of an achievement. Yeah. And so that was sort of my target. I wasn't thinking about anything after that. Uh, I, I thought I could probably get to college, like on a basketball scholarship. But in my senior year, and I'd, I'd been writing, and I'd been uh, in, like, advanced classes, but it almost didn't register. I would get there, and I always felt like, why did they put me in this class? Because it was always like, you know, rich white kids right, who... Right. Well, you know, we're, we're smart, and but it, it was English. So, and I had friends who were good in math, and I thought, thought, well, that means something. I don't, I don't know what it means to be like in an advanced, you know, AP English class. But I was always the weird one in the group. And then, uh, but I and I had a teacher who was very encouraging. And at some point, uh, I just sort of had, I checked out of the class because, again, in some ways, I just I, I liked reading, but I was reading on my own, and so I would do the work in class, but I wasn't like completely in it. Yeah. And so this teacher. You know, she gave me a, uh, well, I found that I was getting ready to make a D. And I did, you know, I did well in school, so it was like the first time. And I knew it was because it was my senior year, and I was dating this girl, yeah. and I was sort of like not coming in, and I just sort of didn't see, like, what the point of it was. And I said to her, and this is the first time it ever came out, I said to her, you know, I think I might uh, be like a teacher. I think I might be an English teacher. I was completely trying to sell her on, like, you don't want to give me a bad grade because I think I want to do what you do. Right. I was completely hustling her. But, of course, <laughs> it was the truth. I yeah. had no idea. I had yeah. no idea that what I was saying was true. And so and before that moment, I'd never really given that much thought to it. And, in fact, you know, I was a painter. So I was still thinking I'm going to go to school. And I did go to college and major in painting. So I was really thinking it was never going to be true. But, of course, I got to college and I had another professor who I was really connected to and was really important to me. And he was in English. And, again, I just took his classes because I liked them. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to do, like, a double major or switch my major. So it was just almost inadvertent that I find myself in a position to be like, oh, wow, hey, I'm teaching, and I like it. Because primarily what I liked was reading, you know, even if it meant that I wasn't going to be paying attention to class. I just thought, well, nobody's going to give me a job for that. Yeah, right. So, right. You know, little did I know. <laughs> this is know. too fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. uh, do you still paint? 
Yeah, I do. Not as much as I would like. I mean, these days I really need to paint because I just need to sort of get completely out of the space. Yeah. But uh, I, my schedule was so busy I couldn't take a class. But I typically will take like a studio class once or twice a year just to generate stuff. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I still paint. Sometimes I think if I could get out of this, I would maybe figure that out again. Yeah. But uh, I, I think it's too late now. So. <laughs> but I still mess around. Good, good. Well, finally, you won the National Book Award in the genre of poetry last year. Could you talk a little about this experience? Did you hear you'd won uh, for the first time at the ceremony when Cornelius Edie announced your name? Or? Right. Yeah, I didn't know anything about it. And in fact, you know, the process for that is that they don't decide until that afternoon. So the thing is that I, and I, this is a, a sort of a funny thing to say, and I think it's still soon, so maybe my mind will change. But I still feel like, oh, it was, they were wrong. You know, I wouldn't have given it to me. It's just too much. It's been so overwhelming in a, in a good way. But I'm not a person who, like, wants to eat all the candy in a candy store at one time. Like, oh, okay, one piece is good. Right. So this is like, it's too much candy. But uh, I had no idea that it was going to be me, based on the award and based on the people that were competing. So they'd sent uh, uh, an email, the organizers, and said, you know, everyone should prepare about a two-minute speech mm-hmm. in case you win, you know. And so, <laughs> and you, you know, thinking, I didn't. Yeah. No. So I wasn't sweating. We got there right before the ceremony. We're, like, out running around. My wife's, like, looking for a dress or something. I never gave it one thought, one moment of what I might say. And then even when we got into the space, I was really excited to see everybody and just sort of starstruck. And um, I just, I really was sure that it was going to be C.D. Wright. You know, she's yeah. a great writer. I've taught her. I'm a big fan of her work. And I think this book is good. And so uh, when uh, Cornelius got up and he said, at some point, he's like said, unanimous decision. Yeah. And so I was shocked because I said to myself, like, I thought at least Cornelius would have voted for me. I mean, I didn't think I was going to win, but I can't believe no one voted for me. You know, for this book, and so, and then of course he's like, you know, it's, it's yeah. So I was then shocked, like, really? So and so I, I wasn't prepared, and so I just went up and took like you know two minutes, if that. And it wasn't too like like it was less twenty was seconds, less. really. Yeah. I think yeah. I say two minutes, something like twenty seconds, just to be like, thanks, uh, you know, thank my wife. But uh, I wasn't uh, I wasn't prepared for that, and I haven't really been prepared for everything that comes and so it's been good and of course it's a hard thing to sort of like you know what people say is oh I can't complain I, I say like I could complain but I know I, I shouldn't complain yeah. yeah and so it, it just I mean that's sort of the size of it though it's that kind of big overwhelming thing where in the midst of it I feel like oh no this is wrong this is wrong they should have just like I would have been happy with being a finalist and that's true because it's really you know as everybody says it's such a an obvious and a, appropriate thing to say which is like this is not why I do it and that's true yeah I was saying to my students the other day, uh, as they were quiet, I said to them, uh, you know, you think because I'm talking that I like to talk. <laughs> I don't actually like to talk. I'm just good at it. I really like to listen and I like to like dialogue. But what happens is people think like, oh, he's, he seems to be doing okay. He must be really happy with this whole thing. And I think, no, that's not, I'm not happy with it, you know. <laughs> so I just want to be in my room. I just want to be alone and be quiet. Right. But that's sort of the, the double edge of the whole process because clearly I can come out and I can talk and put on a good show, but I still sort of feel like, oh, no, no, this is, you know, I just would like to go home and, and be quiet. So. Well, yeah. Terrence Hayes, thank you for coming in and talking with uh-huh. us for a while. <laughs> yeah. Thanks a lot. tuning into the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please tune into our website, www.awpwriter.org.